and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, our 30-day uh, trial is still going on, so please come on down and check it out. Thedispatch.com slash 30 days free. And you can read all of the stuff, including the, the stuff that is only normally available to paid members of the community. And uh, you might actually achieve inner peace, which is nice. Um, today's episode of The Remnant is sponsored by our friends at Donors Trust and at Gabby. More about them in a little bit. Um, so today, very excited. We're sort of doing a special episode of uh, The Remnant, sort of like one of those very special extra long episodes of Punky Brewster or something like that, where uh, we're having my colleague and friend David French on. We are recording this on pub date of his new book. Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David, welcome to The Remnant. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Boy, it sounds like such a cheery book, doesn't it? It's It, it does indeed, yeah. It's well, just very up with people. I got to tell you, it's more upbeat sounding than Suicide of the West. So there's <laughs> well, that. <laughs> yeah, that's a very, very fair point. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Suicide, it, it, we're either falling or we're committed to committing suicide. It's, you know, one or the other. That's right. Um, and, you know, falling can be a form of suicide. It just oh, it's true. That, yeah. yeah. Um, maybe we should work on a book together just called Why You Should Take a Bath with a Toaster and Be Done With It. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, before we get started with the book, which is great, and, um, and I have my, my pointed, if pro forma, uh, disagreements and points of contention with you, which we'll get to, but, uh, we should at least address elephant is strong. You know, uh, uh, what are they, what do they call those giant Guinea pig things? The capybara in the room of <laughs> our deal, quote unquote proposed. We have different versions of it along with Adam white, um, which we saw a way to sort of smooth out, and help institutionally and prevent worse outcomes down the road with the Ruth Bader Ginsburg nomination. And um, we're recording this Tuesday morning. Mitt Romney has just announced that he will vote. He will support voting on the nominate on the nomination. And that means it's basically there are enough votes for this thing to get done before the election. What are your thoughts about it? Uh, where do you come down? Uh, were we just fools? Uh, I think we're right, but I think the, uh, the prospects of, um, someone taking our deal, which was, uh, just to, to sort of lay it out, uh, the deal was hold, essentially hold these folks to their word. Um, in other words, you know, we went through a version of this in 2016. Yes. A lot of people point out there was divided government in 2016. There was Obama had the presidency and the Republicans had the Senate. But there were a lot of very definitive statements made in 2016 by Republican senators and, and after. I mean, Lindsey Graham, I mean, he says, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election. And Ted Cruz 
It's been 80 years since the Supreme Court vacancy was nominated and confirmed in election year. There's a long tradition. You don't do this. Marco Rubio, I don't think we should be moving on a nominee in the last year of a president's term. And then this is the key part. I would say that if it was a Republican president. So you had these people making these definitive statements. And so what do we, what do you do? I mean, it's not just an election year. The election has started. People are voting now. And uh, our proposal was pretty simple. Trump makes his nomination, Senate holds hearings, and then we wait on the vote until the presidential election. If Trump wins, simple, confirm the nominee. If he loses, the Republicans still have that lame duck session. They could, in theory, confirm the nominee. But instead, what they should do is reach an agreement, a deal with the Democrats. Um, and, you know, what that deal could be could be everything from no court packing or no addition of states and no court packing. Uh, in exchange for the deal, Biden gets the, the winner of the presidential election. Joe Biden gets the, the next pick. And it doesn't make anybody happy, Jonah, because it's not owning anybody. Right. <laughs> in, in, and, but I think at some point, and this, this actually will segue into the book discussion, we're in a cycle of escalation every single time there's a choice. Do you de-escalate national politics or do you escalate? We're saying, yes, please. Let's just go ahead and escalate. Yeah. I mean, I, so the only place where I would push back on, on the formulation that you had, it because this is one of the things that bothers me, is so many of the responses, including from very close friends of mine who, you know, I, I yeah. care about a great deal and, and, and I know they're arguing from a sincere point of view, is they consistently will say, oh, but you could never trust, quote unquote, the Democrats. Right. And but my whole point about this, I mean, forget that in the last few days, it's the Republicans who have demonstrated that they can't be trusted to stick to a principle. I mean, it's, right. it's Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz who are completely proving that that they're unwilling to actually stick with the precedents they set for themselves and they're, they can't be trusted. Put that aside. My point was that... I'm not looking for a deal with, quote unquote, the Democrats. I was saying, make a deal with Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, John Tester, you know, yeah. pick, pick a handful of senators and get them to say publicly and on the record, I'm doing this for the good of the country. I will not support X, Y, and Z. In exchange, we're getting this promise from Mitt Romney and whoever. And the, 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 my problem with, with there are a bunch of reasons why I don't like this thing with the Democrats is because, first of all, the Democrats are not on a monolithic whole. They're not all right. equally evil and venal and untrustworthy. They don't all take orders from some centralized common turn or anything like that. <laughs> and the Democrats that you couldn't trust to honor the vote, honor their promise, wouldn't make the promise in the first place. It's right. the only, only the ones like Joe Manson who are in their political interest to make that deal. And if it's in their interest to make the deal, it's in their interest to honor the deal. And... Um, so there's just a certain amount of tribal BSery going on here that just uh, and sort of it's not quite bad faith. I just don't think people have thought through all of this stuff. But anyway, uh, feel free to respond to that. But otherwise, we should move on to your book and how this little uh, contretemps, which is not going to be so little much longer, uh, feeds into your uh, your larger thesis. So what is your larger thesis? Well, first, you're right. I mean, it's not a deal with the, it would not be a deal with the Democrats. It might be a deal with Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, and maybe President Biden that he right. would not sign legislation. So yeah, it would be a deal with specific people. And I, your line is exactly right. I mean, Republicans are saying, 
you can't trust politicians. See, you couldn't trust us. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, again, all of this just deepens public cynicism. It just reaffirms in people's minds that it's all a power game now. It's power. And and that's the only thing you look at is power. And all the words that flow from the power are nonsense. They're just designed to sort of smooth over what is the blatant power play in the moment to be forgotten the instant those words have any meaning to inhibit you. But yeah, so so basically the thesis of my book is, and if you're going to put it in one sentence, it's that there is no single truly important cultural, political, religious, or social trend in the United States of America that is pulling this country together more than it's pushing us apart. So that that's the sort of the fundamental argumentative assertion of the book. And then the next element is, if that is true, and I believe that's true, it can't keep going without significant and severe consequence. And, and so, um, as I said earlier, you know, I'm, I've, you know, building on your awesome book, Suicide of the West, building on books like Coming Apart with Charles Murray, building on Alienated America with Tim Carney, Them with Ben Sass. A lot of books and have taken different looks at different aspects and facets of what's happening to us. And what I'm saying is, yeah, all of this is true. And then what we can't assume everything's going to be okay and and uh what i do i book the book's basically three parts part one is here's why it's not going to get any better (laughs) y'all part two is uh here's how it could happen and i spin out some scenarios about how the united states of america could actually break apart and some people find them chilling some people find them far-fetched and then the last part is i try to introduce here are some ways that we can make it better. And mainly by rediscovering some of the wisdom of the founding fathers, specifically James Madison in Federalist 10, the best Federalist paper. So that's sort of the overview of it. Okay. So obviously, as you sort of suggested in your generous plug of my book, um, we agree on a lot, right? Yeah. So some of this, although I, I'm, I'm not necessarily with you on the secession scenarios, but I'm persuadable on them as well. So, I mean, right. I, I don't think it's totally far-fetched. I just wouldn't bet that way. Um, right. uh, but, you know, so it's interesting. I have been trying to come up with the vocabulary to explain this, to explain a certain point um, to people who disagree with us on all sorts of things. And, <laughs> and, and one of the things, one, one of the problems here is that you know, both of us have, have talked a lot about how pernicious and 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 bad for the country Flight ninety three talk is, um, yeah. the catastrophization of our politics and all that. But uh, what would you say that you're just you're doing catastrophizing here as well, just over a longer timeline? And then I'll get to the point I was going to make in a sec. Yeah, and I've I've talked about this in in writings before the book, one of the reasons why I am so opposed to Flight 93 language is I think the Flight 93 language itself creates a crisis. In other words, that if you are telling people, if Joe Biden is elected president of the United States, America will be over. So you're telling them something that is almost absurdly false 
and extremely hyperbolic. And you know what, though? People believe it. And they respond emotionally and politically accordingly. And so, you know, look, if Joe Biden was running on a platform of abolishing Congress and and burning the Constitution and, you know, there would be you could say, yeah, Joe Biden wants to end America uh, at the America as we know it. But he's running on a platform of, you know, higher taxes, uh, public public option for Medicare. Um, I mean, progressive things that I oppose, but the country can absorb increasing taxes on people who make over $400,000. The country could absorb a public option. I mean, might think it's not as good policy, but the problem that I have is I feel like the constant stoking of hatred is creating hatred and that has consequences. So that's one of the reasons why I'm so opposed to Flight 93ism is I see its effects all around me. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that spurred me to write the book wasn't just a bunch of charts and graphs about polarization, although all of those are pretty alarming. It's also the experience of living around highly polarized people Mm -hmm. and the, the venom, the contempt, the disgust. Um, And I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm 51 years old. I've lived long enough as an adult in politics to, to be able to say with extreme confidence, it's worse. It's worse. And it's not worse necessarily because the Democratic proposals on taxes or even the Democratic judges, which many of them are far more moderate than Justice Brennan, for example. Mm. Um, it's something beyond that. So my argument is that Flight 93-ism itself creates its own crisis. And we're living in that world right now. And so, yeah, no, I totally get it. You're saying I'm against flight 93 ism. Oh, and divided we fall. <laughs> right. But flight 93 ism is creating the division, wrongly creating and exacerbating divisions that are eating away at our body politic. So, all right. So that, that's, that gets me to the point I was going to make, which is that I've been trying to come up with the vocabulary to explain that, you know, and Ross gets at this, you've gotten at this, um, there is this tendency to do um, straight line projections out into the future from the current moment. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the thing I've written about a bunch of times, one of my favorite essays by uh, George Orwell is Second Thoughts on James Burnham, where he, he makes this observation how during World War II, the average guy on the street was just sort of like, in, in Britain, it was like, yeah, you know, eventually it's going to be tough, but we're going to win. Yeah. And the elites uh, were more inclined to have elite panic, where yeah. <laughs> uh, if the um, if the Nazis took Tobruk, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, they're going to take all these other cities and we're doomed. Or if the Brits successfully won a battle, they say, okay, it's a straight line. The victory now and they couldn't they would keep switching it was basically kent brockman from the simpsons hail ants right as yeah. far as the eye can see and one of the things that drives me crazy in these debates is the way in which people don't appreciate that overreach in one direction tends to invite a counter reaction that pulls back the other way and you know obamacare overreach in one direction 
GOP comes sweeps in as a result. And, you know, one way to think about it is regression to the mean, that if you have a big victory for Republicans in one state in 2018 or 2016 or whatever, it's actually more likely than not that the next year there'll actually be some retrenchment because that was an overstretch for some reason or that it activated voters who are like, oh my God, I never thought I needed to vote, but now I need to vote. And this regression to the mean thing or the, this dialectic thing gets lost in a lot of stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I'm skeptical about the secession part is just yeah. that I feel like th- that the way to bet is that eventually there's some jam breaks and there's a corrective force that brings things back, not to right place, but to better than where we are right now. Um, Wait. What do you think? Of I mean, that? there. I think you, I mean, look, you, you could absolutely be right. I mean, one of the solutions to what we're going through right now could just simply be, it will get better. Why will it get better? It's just going to get better. Sort of the, the, the body politic and the culture builds up antibodies to miserable situations. And those, you know, th- there's an interesting, I actually considered a, a chapter really lasering in on this because, you know, you and I are old enough to remember the height of crime waves. You know, crime right. was awful in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I mean, the dystopian movies of the time weren't like Hunger Games. They were like uh, Escape from New York. Right, right. <laughs> you know, or The Running Man, you know. And and so there was a sense, I mean, who's going to get this crime under control? And then a combination of public policy and civic renewal and spiritual renewal and and across the Western world crime drops and drops precipitously. And to this day, people debate, why, why did this happen? So there are things, good things that it can occur, sort of like arising spontaneously in the culture. And I think that's absolutely case, um, that that's very possible. But what I talk about in the first part of the book is there are reasons why we, um, can be, there are reasons why I'm pessimistic about that optimism. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And and they're they're rooted in very real things that are happening. And and the okay, two so why don't you just run through ones. some. I mean, give us give yeah. Us some so love. the two the two the two big ones are um, the big sort. So these are ideas that other people. So this comes from a Bill Bishop book from two thousand and nine that says Americans are clustering in like minded communities more than we have in the past. And he he wrote that in oh nine, and by twenty twenty, it's not less true; it's way more true. Um, so by 2016, more Americans lived in um, counties where one party or the other one by 20 points or more than since we've been measuring this in the modern era. So it's much more likely that you are going to live and work around people of like mind than any time in the recent past. And some of the places is you're not just clustering, you're super clustering to the point where, for example, the whole island of Manhattan has less ge- uh, ideological diversity than your typical white suburban megachurch. Mm-hmm. And your typical white suburban megachurch is pretty ideologically you know, homogenous. So you have the big sort with super clusters. Now, the super clustering has its own effect. And that effect is um, Cass Sunstein, a remnant uh, guest, mm-hmm called in a 1999 paper, which is one of the most prescient and disturbing sort of academic papers I've read. And it's kind of haunted me ever since I read it. And I, I really put it front and center in the book called The Law of Group Polarization. And that says that when people of like mind gather, they get more extreme. And this is something that is 
just something we see in our everyday life. As Sunstein says in his paper, when people who oppose or support gun control get together, they tend to become more extreme in their support for gun control. Same with supporting efforts to combat climate change. I mean, this is something we've all seen. And he even outlined something like a uh, what he called a cascade, where given enough time and enough sort of insularity and cocooning, the group can sometimes become more extreme than the most extreme member at the start of the deliberation. It can just build and build and build. And is this something that we see in, in life? And yeah, I mean, I, I walk through issue after issue where policy positions, and not just on the left, we conservatives are very familiar with making the argument about things like gender identity. I mean, like this is something that six, seven, eight years ago, would somebody have ever said a, a man could have a uterus? Right. <laughs> you know, and now it's hate speech if you disagree in some quarters. Um, so we're very used to this preference cascade on one side. And I walk through on the other side, on the right side of the aisle, we've had a major preference cascade on some issues. And, and what that does is it means we pull apart so that, that we talk about this sort of U-shaped bell curve of American ideology with a big middle and the small extremes, and that bell curve is flattening. And so as we wall off, as we cocoon, we're getting more extreme, and we're getting more extremely apart from each other, and then that leads to measurable increases in antipathy and, and distaste and disgust for the other side. And so my question is, if these things are real, clustering of like-minded people and group polarization, where does it end? Where does that end? And I agree with you completely. It can end. It can end. But one of the things that's discouraging to me is um, it seems like our politics is less about reverting to the mean anymore and more about every overreaction is accompanied by an equal and uh, slightly more dramatic overreaction. Mm -hmm. That we're not reverting to a mean, we're lurching from one extreme to another. Yeah, which I mean, not to take it back to the punditry stuff, but that was sort of the basis of both of our arguments about coming up with some sort of deal because the Democrats, I think they're wrong. I mean, just wrong about wanting to pack the courts and do the yeah. statehood plays and all of that kind of stuff and do the end of the judicial filibuster. But it is among the most predictable freaking things in the world now that the pressure for them to do so internally has just been increased tenfold. And, yeah. you know, I'm going to have a lot of fun reposting you know, our pieces in two years or four years or whatever saying, if only someone had listened, because that's going to be where <laughs> we're going to be, you know? Yeah. So I, I agree with you on that. Um, I, so, you know, one of the things that, so our, first of all, just as a comment, there's a great book called, I think it's Wisdom of Crowds. I read it a long time ago and mm -hmm. it's um, very much like Cass's argument there. And one of the things that it runs through are the, these studies that actually show that depending on what kind of group you're talking about, um, uh, having diversity within a group actually makes the group much smarter. Yeah. Um, and including diversity that includes putting some really dumb people in the group. And <laughs> yeah. because one of the things that dumb people will do or small children will do, it's like the emperor has no clothes effect. They'll just simply ask, why? Yeah. Right? Why are we doing this? Because they haven't bought into the group assumption. So 
a group of physicists is actually smarter with one kind of non you don't have to call them dumb, just one non-physicist in the group because they ask questions outside the box of the kind of group think. And I think this is one of the problems that you get in mainstream media today where yes oh and for also, sure and, and, and right-wing media to be sure but like mainstream media still claims to be wholly objective right and that they're just calling balls and strikes and stuff and if you live in a workplace environment let's just take affirmative action where your editor may be a beneficiary of some kind of affirmative action or or your 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 writing partner or three people in your meeting are the idea that somehow you're going to cover both sides of the argument fairly in a way that the opponents of affirmative action will say, okay, well, at least they understand where we're coming from. It's just very unlikely, you know, that kind of group yeah. think. And I, I think when you look at what MSNBC and even the New York Times have become, the inability to speak honestly in meetings because of this concentration effect that you're talking about explains so much of the final product that comes down the pike. Absolutely. And I, you know, I've had experience being like the only conservative in the room more than a few times in my career. Um, and, and it's an interesting experience. And I, I was, I was on the, um, admissions committee at Cornell law school when I was, uh, teaching there. And so I saw how the sausage was made on admissions and it's a bloody process indeed, but it was fascinating to me to see, and my colleagues were, I really liked them. They mm. were good folks. They were all in largely within agreement on on the same side, of the, and they were on several steps removed from me ide ideologically to my left. And just raising some objections to some of the, the consensus in the room shattered the consensus. Right. It was, oh, no, I didn't think of it like that. And you might say, well, that's, that's odd. Shouldn't smart, people, shouldn't smart people see this point of view? But you and I know that you can take the smartest people, put them in a room, and if they're agreeing with each other, they're not testing any assumptions at all. Right. And and so this happens. No, I, I'm a I'm a big believer that, yeah, there are in the mainstream media there are some people who are bad actors, you know, sort of rubbing their hands together like uh, Mr. Burns and The Simpsons. Uh, but by and large, people are trying to do their jobs, and they're just in a particular. Uh, ideological bubble that really needs to be burst. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the product would improve dramatically if it was. Yeah, they do these, I mean, on this Wisdom of stuff, they do um, these exercises where they ask different groups of people to like make some kind of contraption with a bunch of loose parts. And often the group that does the best are like little kids because they don't know what they're not supposed to do. <laughs> right. um, and when you live in these groups where everybody is four or five or six steps ahead on the same board, you know, game board, they never think about the other routes that you could have taken, which is why I, I do think that like the most interesting debates in political life, when you can find them are actually intra conservative or intra right yeah. or intra left, because people will share the first assumptions, but then actually disagree about, you know, steps two through 20. Um, and, that's anyway, that's neither here nor there. So, um, you know, it, part of the problem with talking about this is that, uh, we both been writing about this and reading each other and talking about this stuff for so long <laughs> that a lot of the questions that a normal person would ask you are ones I know your answer to, you know? <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> um, but, and also, you know, having read big chunks of the book, but, uh, the, 
Um, you know, we should talk for two seconds about the role that social media plays in these centrifugal. Is that the right word or a centripetal? I think that's the right. Yes. Okay. The thing that's the, making the, us fly apart. <laughs> pull apart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, so go ahead. Yeah. Um, so it's both important and exaggerated. So, mm. you know, look, um, <laughs> massive divisions have happened in human history without social media. Um, you know, I, I'd have to check my facts, but I think Twitter was in, was in its infancy in 1861. Um, so we have had massive divisions, conspiracy theories that spread like wildfire, um, extreme polarization all without social media. There's just no question about that. Um, but the way I sort of think about social media is it, it, at the same time, it's kind of like, uh, and I've said this about Trump himself. He, it sort of, um, it, it makes the underlying disease worse. Um, like Trump is a symptom that makes the underlying disease worse. I mean, and, and I think that social media makes under the underlying disease, depending, and not all the platforms are the same. They're not all, you know, it's not just one big Borg, um, but in different ways, they make things worse. And one of the ways they make things worse is they absolutely allow some of the worst and most toxic voices to achieve a platform that as much as people disliked sort of quote unquote legacy um, conservative media, so sort of conservatism Inc. You know, if you read some of the MAGA press or dislike the mainstream media, um, a lot of there are a lot of voices that are extraordinarily toxic, extraordinarily consumed with conspiracies and often just eaten up with pure hatred that wouldn't have gotten a hearing that now have a hearing now can go viral. Um, but I think it's easy to exaggerate social media. I mean, uh, the, the effect of it. And, and a lot of people think, well, if we just can tweak the algorithms, if we can get rid of the fake news on Facebook and it'll all be better, um, maybe a little, but I think the fundamental realities are these bigger things that we just talked about that, that big sort, that group polarization and social media makes it worse. How much worse? I don't know, but we're not going to fix it by fixing Facebook's algorithm or making Jack Dorsey better at censoring speech on Twitter. That's not going to fix it. Uh, and in fact, if it's done ham handedly and if it's done the wrong way, it makes it worse. Uh, it, it, as we've seen as, as social media companies sort of try to blunder their way through creating some version of a university speech code, um, ev makes everybody angrier. So I, I think that, you know, social media, it's easy to overread because our, we often stampede to here's this thing that I can fixate on. And if we can just fix this thing, we'll make it okay. Maybe a better social media, um, moderation culture would make things a little better, but it's sort of um, this underlying fundamental realities that have made us angry at each other are still there. Right. So I am, um, I mean, one of the things we're, we're just on, on the same page is you and I, unlike some other people who are worried about polarization, think the answers are more along, fall more along the lines of back to basics yeah. than, uh, you know, following through on further centralization, you know, that there's yeah. a lot of stuff in 
the Constitution and in our basic ideals and the best versions of ourselves that fix a lot of these problems, and we've just lost sight of them. And I want to talk about that, but it does call to mind the importance of donors' trust. John and Jane have college-age children, and it wasn't long before the couple discovered the world looked different when viewed through this new college lens. Since then, they've been supporting classroom and other foundational programs that teach the principles of economic liberty, rule of law, and free expression. I wonder, I may be going through the same thing as I am going to be taking my kid on a bunch of college tours this week. They could have written personal checks to accomplish their goals, but John and Jane opened a donor's advised fund at Donors Trust instead. At Donors Trust, they knew they would spend less time on administration and more time on having an impact. A donor-advised fund is like a charitable savings account where you can manage your giving in a smart tax advantage and private way. Donors Trust is unique, working with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that strengthen America. Donors Trust's philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust to see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving. Go to donorstrust.org/dingo for their six reasons to use a donor-advised fund. That's donorstrust.org/dingo. Dingo. We thank Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So, uh, you know, I listened to, because I remember you telling me how you did this podcast with Ezra Klein and how you guys argued about federalism a lot. And <laughs> federalism is deep in my head these days because I keep getting dragged into these electoral college and, and Senate debates, which I, there are a lot of arguments where I have the, I can't remember who called it this, like the transcendental imagination to be able to put myself empathetically in someone else's shoes and say, ah, I may disagree with you, but I really see where you're coming from. Right? Like police brutality, that kind of, those yeah. kinds of things. I get the other sides of a lot of these arguments, whatever side I may be on. Um, I honestly, it drives me crazy trying to argue with some people who are like all day yesterday telling me that state lines are just gerrymanders. Um, and that, uh, you know, and that, that, that you don't like democracy if you believe in a Senate or, you know, all of these weird things. And, um, so I thought your argument with Ezra Klein, which I was prepared to completely disagree with Ezra. I thought he actually made some pretty good points. Doesn't, mm -hmm. hasn't changed my basic position philosophically. Uh, but why don't you talk about how centralization, first of all, is, part of the problem, not part of the cure. And then we'll move on from there. Yeah. No, that was a great conversation with Ezra. Um, and I think some of the, it's interesting. So he's super concerned about polarization, as am I. He wrote a book called Why We're Polarized that I would recommend that people read. So we're both, he's left, I'm right. We're both super concerned about polarization, but it's interesting, we're coming from different communities. So he is a community coming from a progressive community that has a pretty good argument that it's a majoritarian not by much, but it represents a majority of the country. I'm coming from a conservative movement, specifically social conservative side, that it's close, but is minoritarian. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the big divide here is progressives really fear minoritarian control. 
And a lot of conservatives fear majoritarian tyranny. So there's a, that divide creates a natural de- different defaulting kind of solutions. But my point is this. My point is America is getting increasingly, increasingly diverse. American communities are increasingly disparate in their values. Um, if you live where I live, the idea that America is a, a, a nation of declining religiosity is weird. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just weird. I mean, the number of churches, the amount of religious devotion in this community, um, it, it, if anything, the atmosphere, it seems to be increasing. But if you went to San Francisco, you would feel like, oh, yeah, I totally get it. There is a, this is a secular city, by and large. And, and so in increasing diversity, what we've done at the same time is also had increasing centralization, <laughs> The federal government, and in particular, one person, the president, has had an increasing amount of power handed to him, an increasing amount of control, an increasing scope of the national government while we're growing more divergent and while we're growing more diverse, which then means that, you know, while I, I totally dislike this most important election in our lifetime, because I think that's only really knowledge, we only really know that in hindsight. We don't know it going into it usually. But I will acknowledge that when you have that increasing centralization, what's ending up happening is each successive four years, you're voting for the most powerful peacetime central government Mm -hmm. in modern American history. And the next four years, it's the most powerful peacetime government with increased fracturing and division. And the other thing that, and this is, I point this out in the book, this is inconsistent with a lot of the rest of the way that we live. We are living in a culture of increasing customization. I mean, even big tech mega companies like Google and Amazon have made a lot of their, and Netflix have made a lot of their billions upon billions by serving up to you something that's super custom. Might want to edit out that dog that just went crazy. (laughs) Not not on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) but we're used to this super custom, um, you know, a way of life. And then this giant centralized government, which is an, a creation of a period of time that we don't live in anymore. Right. It was a, you know, a night, great depression followed immediately by World War II, followed immediately by the Cold War. And we have all of those legacy systems without the underlying conditions that created the legacy systems. And it creates an inherent tension is my argument, which is why I say we need to devolve leadership down to a local level, uh, as push it as close to people as we can, which then makes our government consistent in many ways with the actual lifestyle of an inc- increasingly diver- uh, diverse country. Yeah, so this is this is one of these things that, uh, again, for the, those playing bingo, um, that you've all really put, you've all of in really put into sharp focus for me, which is that centralization also leads to radically increased, um, individualism mm. that, uh, because as the state grows in power, it sees the, it becomes increasingly, uh, blind to the intermediating institutions, the local communities and all those kinds of things. And it just sees it basically makes what's uh, Scott, I think it's Scott Atlas called, it makes the population legible and it does it on an individual basis. And as the individual gets more and more stuff from the centralized government, it no longer looks closer to home for the things that it needs. Um, 
Barack Obama's second inaugural address describes an America where it's the federal government and the individual, Julia in effect, right? And nothing in the middle. And yeah. that's one of the problems that you get when you get increased centralization is that people look to the centralized government in Washington to satisfy whatever needs that they can't fulfill on their own rather than to those concentric circles building out from faith, family, friends, community, local government, and all the rest. And I think that's a huge, huge problem. Um, the, 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 the solution to it, I mean, for you and I, it's federalism. But I think one of the things that we've encountered in recent years is that a lot of the people who believe in federalism, it's very much like free speech for me, but not for thee, or yeah. free trade for me, but not for thee, <laughs> or free markets for me, but not for thee. And uh, the whole, you know, uh, drag queen story hour thing is a perfect example of how um, no one actually believes in the right to be wrong anymore. Right. Well, and, and I point this out in my book because my book is not a super optimistic, boy, boy, man, this is a real, this is a hard sales pitch. Um, this book <laughs> is alarming and not optimistic. On sale now. Um, it's a cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I talk about is both both sides have tended to use federalism as a tactic and right. and not as a, a principle. And um, you know, one of the most federalist jurisdictions in the entire United States of America right now is California. I mean, it's passed sanctuary state laws. It has, in, in some ways, it almost seems like it's trying to secede from the Bill of Rights, which I say in my book, the only federalism that can work is one that fully respects the Bill of Rights because the mm -hmm. federalisms of the past that failed are federalisms that denied full access to the Bill of Rights to some of its citizens. But yeah, so, you, you, you know, heck, I mean, California is the Federalist's paradise right now. Um, but, you know, I'm, I remember when Republicans were not in power and Republicans would enact some immigration measures, for example, in the state of Arizona, um, that were the flip side of the immigration measures enacted in, in California. And in came the Obama administration like a ton of bricks. And, and so what we have is when we're in control, we want to run it all. And when we're right. not into control, we suddenly rediscover the wisdom of the founders. Now, part of that is just human nature. You know, like if, if you're in control, you tend to think, well, I'm in control and I have better ideas than the people I defeated. So if people with bad ideas get their way, then just the common good is not advanced to use, you know, a uh, right wing buzz buzzword or buzz phrase. Or if you're on the left then social justice is not advanced if these people who are wrong get their way anywhere. And, and this is what happens. And the, the problem that we have is that all of that just escalates the dispute, especially when we're growing more separate. And one thing that I would go back to uh, a point you made early on, you, and I read that same thing, Jonah, we need to read different stuff. Because we're reading <laughs> all this. <laughs> that great point about, you know, the elites in Britain were panicked and the regular folks were chill. Um, and the funny thing is, I think with the rise of the, of Trump, a lot of American sort of elites in the establishment realized a reverse truth that they were conducting politics as usual in some ways. And the, a lot, millions upon millions of millions of Americans in the, in the base were hyper alarmed 
more than the establishment realized. So it's sort of an uh, inverse of that. The, the, mm-hmm. the catastrophe feeling was being felt by millions of people around the country. And they were sit- looking at a Republican party that said, it, Marco Rubio or Kasich or Cruz or Jeb Bush, that's the answer. And they were like, no, we need, you know, we need the bull in the China shop. And um, there was a moment I was, I, I, I don't listen to a lot of talk radio most for a lot of reasons. One of them, I work during the day. <laughs> right. And, but I remember tuning in and then sort of towards the end of the primaries, listening to Rush. And I just wanted to see where's Rush on all this. And for the first time in my life, I heard this weird tone from him, which was, I feel like Rush is afraid of his own audience right mm-hmm. now. Because he was about to offer some criticism of Trump in one of the late stage primary debates. And he says, I'm going to criticize Trump and you're going to get mad at me. And I know it, you know, and I was thinking, that's not, that's a lot more defensive than the Rush I listened to 15, 20 years ago. And sure enough, I mean, he he offered this very limited critique of Trump and the wave reaction response to him. I mean, he was obviously knocked back on his heels. And so I think that that's another thing that where these dynamics have taken hold on a mass scale amongst the politically engaged part of the population. So um, I remember that those days, and I think not long after that, Maybe I got my timeline wrong, but I remember just my jaw dropping to the floor where Rush had said, look, you know, I'm not a part of the conservative movement. It's just basically me and the tea parties. And I've never told people how to vote. And <laughs> this is like, I was like, what, you know, what's going on? Um, right. And so let me, let me, and again, I think, you know, again, as the author of something called Suicide of the West, I, I certainly think really bad stuff is possible. And in your secession scenarios are definitely among them. And we should tell readers that you actually run through two of them. I did get the feeling a little bit since we've talked so much about like zombie apocalypse and prepper stuff and red dawn, that some of that was just you indulging your inner prepper. So like you could finally (laughs) figure out how to use your root cellar with the stock with (laughs) bottled water and salt pills. But we'll get to that in a second. Um, but as a sort of slight counter argument, um, one of the arguments that I made in my book is that one of the reasons why things are so messed up is that people increasingly are following politics as a form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. And there are really fascinating things in, uh, that, that Paul Bloom writes about in his, his, he's a psychologist from Yale, about what happens to your brain when you follow stuff. And Steven Pinker writes about this too. When you follow stuff as entertainment, um, a lot of the moral distinctions that we think define Western civilization just go right out the window. And you want to see, you don't care if it's against the law to torture somebody. If you know the bad guy knows where the baby is being held hostage and then you see the good guy smack him around or shoot off his toe or whatever, you're like, yeah, go for it. And, um, uh, there's this one study that I've talked about a bunch on here that Bloom talks about, about how they bring in a guy into a room with a two-way mirror and there's someone who they believe is about to be uh, uh, shocked with electricity and mm-hmm. they shock him and not knowing anything about the guy, the empathetic centers of the brain light up and the guy feels really sorry for him and you do one of those little jumps, right? And then it turns out that they tell the guy who's a Red Sox fan that the guy being shocked is a Yankees fan. 
and they shock them again and the pleasure <laughs> centers of their brain light up. <laughs> and so the flip side to all of this is like, so when you follow politics as a form of entertainment, you just want your hero to win and you don't care if the other side loses or whether it's fair or anything like that. I've written about this a bunch. Originally, this idea that came from Ace of Spades, who I think has lost his mind and hates my guts and all these things. But he made this really great point that I've, I've written about a bit about um, the MacGuffinization of politics. You know, in a movie, a mm -hmm. MacGuffin is just the thing that the guy wants, the hero wants, and you want the hero to get it. You really don't care about the rules so long as they get it, whether it's the briefcase in Pulp Fiction or it's the secret plans in North by Northwest or whatever. Um, and... That's how they covered, the press covered Obama's Obamacare stuff. Is they just wanted them to get it. Or that's how they covered um, changing the DACA rules. They didn't really care whether he had said it would be unconstitutional. They just wanted the hero to win and the bad guys to lose. Yeah. So I think that's really bad and it screws up our politics in all sorts of terrible ways. And I know I'm filibustering. But the flip side <laughs> argument to that is if people are just watching it as entertainment, the idea that they're going to pick up guns for their favorite reality show to win um, in large numbers strikes me as not necessarily the case. Um, yeah, that's what well, I see. I, I totally agree with you. Mm. I don't posit in my book a civil war. Yeah. Like in my secession scenarios, it's not a civil war. And I, and I never at any point posit a large number of people grabbing guns. I do posit a couple of dangerous situations with militias, which... Uh, then sadly, yeah, can spark yeah. these things. No, I think that America in an interesting way, it's just not what it was in 1860, 1861, where, you know, General Beauregard was all too willing to just go ahead and Leroy Jenkins at Fort Sumter. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's not that it, we're not that, um, I don't think people would say, I can't, my, my sons are going to go and fight the sons of California for, the continued uh, unity of our nation. It might, what I posit is more of an exhausted divorce where um, escalating, blundering, terrible decisions that are in part empowered by ext base extremism lead to, a, you know, in essence, a, a mutual parting under bitterly acrimonious terms. And, and I think in, 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 in an interesting way, I think the, um, sportsification of politics actually makes this more likely in this sense. It is, mm -hmm. we're now reaching a point where part of the sport of politics is LARPing civil war and division. Mm -hmm. You know, you have all of these MAGA people buy guns, buy ammunition. This is why you can never have too many guns. This is why you can never have too much ammunition. You have these people saying now, you know, this, it, the, you know, continually stoking Antifa is Biden. Antifa is Biden, you know, and then on the right, the proud boys are Trump, the proud boys are Trump. And, and one of the interesting things that you end up seeing is that there, this stuff doesn't stay online. I remember mm -hmm. back in the alt-right days, you know, I mean, you and I both had our unpleasant moments with the alt-right in 2015, 2016. And people said, stop freaking out about this. This is only Twitter. This is trolling. It's Twitter. Well, who says that now that there have been people killed in the U.S.? You know, right. people have died. And so I think what happens is this online LARPing and this online stoking, there is a, it, it, I almost look at it as you have a large number of people who are stoking division, a smaller number of people who are militarizing it by guns, by guns, by guns. 
And then a smaller number of people are saying, okay, yeah, I'm buying the guns. And then another group is going to put on body, body armor, strap on the AR-15 and go LARP in the streets. And it doesn't take much, as we saw in Charlottesville, as we saw recently in Kenosha, as we have seen in Portland, it doesn't take much for that to, for, for people to just stumble into awfulness. Mm-hmm. I, I'll give you a good example. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but in Minneapolis, shortly after the George Floyd killing, a whole bunch of people were barricading the interstate. And a tractor trailer didn't notice the signs stopping, you know, stopping traffic and, and started to barrel into this crowd of about 200 people. And if they hadn't seen it, if he hadn't slammed on his brakes and they hadn't scattered in just the absolute nick of time, you could have had an almost Nice France level of death toll just mm-hmm. from blundering. Yeah. And these are the things that I worry about. Like we we are stoking so much, and and I'm not talking about the Army of Northern Virginia folk facing off against the Army of the Potomac. I'm talking about blundering people who've been stoked by an enormous amount of hate, lighting a match that will lead in divorce, not civil war, but just mutual, bitter, angry division. So I mean, at this point, I feel like we should play that scene from Hunt for Red October where Fred Thompson says, This business will get out of control. It'll get out of control and we'll be lucky to live through. And I got to say, you know, if in, in those scenarios with Antifa and, and all that stuff going on in the streets, the thing that you might want even more than ammo is Gabby. And that's why I want to talk to you about Gabby. When you've had the same car insurance or homeowner's insurance for years, you kind of get trapped into paying your premiums and not even thinking about it. That's what makes it really easy to overpay and not even realize it. Stop overpaying for car and homeowner's insurance. See about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have thanks to Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers, such as Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. You link your current insurance account, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. That's what I did, and I found out that I actually have a pretty good deal, in large part because my wife is much better at managing these things than I am, and she stays on top of it. But Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. If they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing that you have the best rate out there. And they'll never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. It's totally free to check out your rate and there's no obligation. Take a few minutes right now and stop overpaying on your car and home insurance. Go to Gabby, that's G-A-B-I dot com slash remnant. That's Gabby.com slash remnant. Gabby.com slash remnant. We thank Gabby for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, which is also your promo code. All right, so let's I forget forget picking up arms and going to civil war. That was a a a, a overstatement of your your position. Um I do think though that the second you start talking about secession, that gives all sorts of people, I mean, if 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 you're willing to secede from the union. 
the, the permission structure that comes with that can lead to all sorts of things that have become very difficult to, to roll back. But yep. the thing, right, so th- this is the only thing that kind of drives me crazy and it sort of gets to this sportsification or politics is entertainment thing is I'm sure you've heard this, you know, we've talked about this a bunch from people saying you don't understand. Um, it's a binary choice. And if you vote the wrong way, it's the end of the country. It's the end <laughs> of America, all this kind of stuff. Right. And yet it doesn't seem to have occurred to anybody who says that, whether they're on the left or on the right, to move somewhere where their vote will actually have consequence, right? I mean, they're, they're willing to talk about possible civil war. They're willing to talk about the end of If I honestly believe that the end of America were in the cards, I might be willing to move to a swing state to cast a vote. But instead, there is this sort of like, <laughs> I'll, you know, like people scream at me all day and all night about how I'm, you know, they, they think if I if they can get me to admit to a, my vote and that somehow that will change what I write and how I say things and all these kinds of things. It won't. But I live in Washington, D.C. You live in Tennessee. You know, I, I, as a civic ritual, your vote matters, yada, 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 yada. As a matter of partisan politics, your vote, I mean, maybe down ticket in Tennessee, it matters. But in D.C., my vote just really doesn't matter. And yeah. <laughs> um, but if I were one of these guys I hear from every day, one of these Charlie Kirk types and all that stuff, and I lived in Texas or Mississippi or something, why not move to Illinois or Ohio where your vote actually could help save America? And that's what I'm sort of getting at about so much of this LARPing and entertainment culture. People don't translate it into the kind of action you would expect if they took their own rhetoric seriously. Oh, we have that problem in a big way. I, you have a lot of a very passive rage, yeah. ultimately. It's a, very, it's a rage. It's an anger. It's very real. You care, but ultimately your actions do not match your rhetoric. And in a way, in its own way, my view is in its own way that presents a weird kind of danger where you will go along with whoever on your side takes the action. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, here you have a lot of anger, helpless, passive rage, and you feel it. It's very real. And then you have a Donald Trump who, if you had talked to these same Republicans, say, in 2014 and said, do you know you're going to be supporting in a few years somebody who paid hush money to a porn star, somebody whose campaign actively reached out to the Russians for assistance, who lied about an incoming pandemic and 200,000 Americans are dead. And you just ran through it. They would be actually And you're going to call me a liberal for not supporting the guy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) They would be offended. How little do you think of me that you would say I would support all of those things? But what ends up happening is it's a a rage and it's passive. And so that means you default to who's going to be the champion of the rage, the person of action who's going to be the champion of the rage. And so, again, that's why I don't necessarily posit the civil war because it's a nation of passive rage, but it's also a nation that will default, use its rage to default to those who are active, who, who advance the rage. And, um, on the sports point, this is just a interesting, you know, historical note. Some of the, um, some of the folks before the civil war, um, not all of them, some new going into a civil war is going to be awful and horrible and dreadful and deadly and the worst thing ever. But some folks looked at that as the next extension of the grand adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're going, you know, we're, we're going to, whi- you know, we're going to whoop the Yankees. I mean, this was the next extension of the grand adventure, but the, 
the um, I think that passive rage makes people more likely to go along with whoever is the tribal avatar. It's really adjusted a lot of my view of the importance of leadership. I used to not be one of these sort of like great man theory of history per- mm. people. And I still say that can be overblown. But what I'm seeing is the power of leadership in the United States. People are going to essentially delegate their action to the to the 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 leadership class. And the other issue where this really gets me as somebody who's been a pro-life lawyer and for a long, long time, raised tons of money for pro-life causes and litigated on behalf of pro-life students and activists from coast to coast. All of this language is as abortion is a mass murder. Um, what are you doing about it? Now, and I'm not in any way advocating lawlessness, but what lawful actions are you taking? Well, I, I vote every couple of years and, you know, and I, I, I post on social media about it on occasion. <laughs> uh, there is a mismatch between your actions right. and your rhetoric. Right. And we just see this constantly, but it doesn't turn down the temperature. It's sort of, it's like a freebie of increasing the temperature. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it could very well be that we just sort of devolve into sort of this helpless sputtering rage that's uh, a state of near permanent misery, but not division. <laughs> that's possible also. Yay. Um, so, um, uh, the, so just, just cause I'm kind of curious and I, you know, uh, I've been reading sections of the book. Um, so I may have just missed some of it, but what other than the sort of generic patriotic argument that America staying together is better than America splitting apart. What, you know, given that we've stipulated that, you know, uh, self rule closer to where you actually live increases human happiness. What is your principled argument, um, against, turning the United States into two or three different countries. Well, there's principle and there's pragmatism. So, I, you know, the, the, the principle argument is I believe in the American RD ideals articulated in the declaration and the constitution. I mean, this is a nation centered around some ideas and values, however, imperfectly. And in, in, I phrased it recently in the newsletter, you know, a lot of American history is the war between 1619 and 1776. And thankfully, 1776 has prevailed more and more and more the longer we've gone. And these ideals, they don't, they're not, they, I feel like these ideals are important enough to preserve in national form. And when you split apart, what's there to guarantee that these ideals will exist in any one of the different entities that spin apart, especially because they'll be spinning apart in an atmosphere of extreme enmity and rage and won't necessarily be thinking as aspirationally or wisely as the founders. In fact, one of the arguments about how it could happen is it would spin apart through just basic blundering and, and foolishness and, and short-sightedness. So these as- ideas matter a nation of this size and power dedicated to the, un, the, you know, the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that advances a, as a core civilizational value, the rights articulated in the Bill of Rights, is worth preserving, period, full stop. Um, and so that's the principle. The pragmatism is I have a chapter where I spin out 
Um, you may not like the thinking about the world and America's place in the world and America's role in preserving stability and peace and preventing the kinds of nightmares that we have endured throughout history. But I just play out a scenario, America starts to dissolve what happens in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think it fundamentally changes reality in a way that would be shattering to just our experience of the world. A multipolar nuclear, massive nuclear proliferation, great power conflict re-arising because there's a lot of latent simmering great power disputes that have been, there's been a lid kept on them. Uh, for decades and decades and decades because of the power of the United States of America. You take that away and all of this, you know, sort of history gets going again. Mm -hmm. And and so there's a principal reason, there's a pragmatic reason. Um, and, and so, you know, yeah. And, but part of what America is, is a place that allows an enormous amount of, or it should allow enormous amount of self-governance. That's part of the principled creation of the American experiment and one of the reasons why we're straining right now and one of the reasons why we're so angry at each other right now is because we are departing in a lot of ways from that principled aspect of the American experiment, that principled con commitment to self-governance. So I'm glad you brought that up because, um, and, and just for the record, listeners, I am not like just asking questions about splitting up the United States of America. Although I, No, of course. Literally was just asking questions, but um, <laughs> with no ironic you know, intent to it. I just... It's, you know, it's, it's one of those questions I think that every now and then needs to be answered. And I thought it was a good answer. Um, the, you know, you said before you've reevaluated your understanding of, of leadership and I've done a lot of that too. Um, but I've also completely revisited my understanding of followership, which is not yes. something I used to really think very much about. Um, you know, one of the things I used to love about this country, and I still love about this country in all sorts of ways, as a tradition and as something that's part of the American character, I just think it's it needs renewal, is our, in some ways, lack of followership. <laughs> um, you know, we just do what we think is best. We have deep and abiding skepticism of our leaders. Um, when governments want to do, when U.S. governments or, you know, administrations or Congresses want to do stuff that just really, you know, pets, rub, rubs us the wrong way. Um, Americans just like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're not doing the metric system, whatever. And both under Obama and under um, Trump, you all of a sudden see some of that just going away, you know, that, that instead it really is more... I mean, it's part and parcel of populism, but there's there's something almost secular religious about it, that they're trying to find the meaning in their lives from being part of a crowd and being part of a movement. And, um, and that really worries me. We can all know the Lincoln quote about how, you know, the only thing that will end America is if Americans, you know, lose faith in America. Um, yeah. You know, but... That has surprised me in the last decade, probably more than anything else about our, our change in politics. You know, we've had this really interesting this paradox come up, and that is huge amounts of distrust of institutions followed at the same time as we've had huge amounts of devotion to individual leaders. So, you know, both Obama 
I mean, and people forget 08. Um, man, 08 was something else on the, the, almost this sort of mass ecstasy that swept through part of the American left around Barack Obama. It was, it was something to behold. I had not seen that level of devotion. Maybe I was just missing it, you know, but there was a level of devotion there to Obama that was really remarkable. And then now we all know the level of devotion that exists on parts of their right to Trump that's really remarkable. And that level of devotion also, ironically enough, is occurring in some of the more ornery sections of the right. Some of the more don't you dare tell me what to do sections of the right has extreme devotion to this guy, extreme devotion. And so it's sort of dysfunctional coming and going. There's a dysfunctional, look, we should treat in, there should not be blind devotion in anyone or anything, but we have an extreme distrust of institutions and then follow that up with an extreme devotion in certain, certain sectors uh, to individuals. And I, I don't know if you saw this poll that sort of made the rounds about people's attitudes to single payer and yeah, how yeah, dra- yeah. dramatically they diverged depending on who was supporting it. Um, if they were told Obama supported it, you know, democratic support was through the roof. If they were told Trump supported it, democratic, uh, democratic support just plummeted. Um, and it's, it's, that's, you know, there's this extreme devotion to the leader. Um, and you see it, you know, you see it often, a lot of the more hardcore, you know, like the, the HuffPo is constantly sort of yes, queening and yes, kinging, you know, various democratic politicians. And then, You'll have the favorites in the MAGA world um, that can do no wrong. And yeah, it's it's deeply disturbing. It's sort of like choose your champion right. um, kind of a kind of mentality of approaching politics. The um, for listeners who weren't paying attention during a lot of that, because I mean, look, a lot of conservatives like me and, and, and David were fairly freaked out by the reaction of big chunks of the left. Um, to Obama. And uh, I always like to tell people to check out, There's, it's still up and running, I checked while you're talking. Um, it's called obamamessiah.blogspot.com. If you just Google, is Barack Obama the Messiah? It'll take you to that page pretty quickly. And it's got just amazing collection of quotes from people uh, all over the political spectrum talking about, you know, in a, in a sort of, sincerely that he was, you know, as what, what was the guy from the San Francisco Chronicle? He called him a light worker. One of yeah, these in, the light you know, worker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, is uh, Deepak Chopra said he was a quantum leap in American consciousness. Um, uh, I'll skip Ezra Klein's quote out of, uh, out of comedy. Um, <laughs> uh, Oprah Winfrey, you know, we're here to evolve to a higher plane. He is an evolved leader. He has an ear for eloquence and a tongue dipped in the unvarnished truth with unvarnished truth and capital, both capitalized. There was a stuff about, uh, somewhere on here, you know, Barbara Walters said that we really thought he was like, uh, the Messiah or the second coming of Jesus or something like that. There was a lot of that stuff. And I think that one of the problems you get in these moments is, if you're outside that group think you mm-hmm. overinterpret crazy statements like that um yeah. and you take them absolutely seriously and i think that you know and this is one of the problems i get into because i also hear statements like that about trump 
you know, I mean, I remember, I remember just my jaw hitting the floor where Jesse Waters on the five said, you know, and this is early in the Trump years, uh, saying, you know, look, there are people out there who are really talking about how we'd be better off if he could just be dictator for a while. Um, and as the author of a book called Liberal Fascism, where I talk about that kind of stuff, I was just like, holy crap, has, have, have, have conservatives just gone full circle on all of these kinds of things? And I, but I think that people on the left really take that stuff super seriously and they give each other this dynamic. It's sort of like your point about nut picking. When you listen to the most extreme versions of what the other side is saying and you take it yeah. deadly seriously, you then extrapolate from that, that they all think that way and that they all really believe that. And that, that can actually be terrifying and leads into this, you know, this feedback loop that you're talking about in the book. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, you know, all of these things that I talk about in the book are reversible. Like all, all of these, all of these problems in isolation are fixable. I mean, you know, c could there be a sort of a, uh, a, a, a sort of Twitter mores rejection of nut picking where people get piled on for nut picking? Well, yeah, I think something like that could happen where, and, and I've even seen signs of it amongst some smarter and more concerned folks. Like, can we stop with the quote retweeting already of every yeah. lunatic you see? Um, so are there in, things that can change this stuff? Yeah. And, and in fact, one of the reasons why I wrote the book, uh, but what it requires is an awareness of, it, it requires an awareness of the threat. Like I, I, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is I wanted to adjust people's perception of what are the stakes? What are the true flashpoints and pressure points in this country? Right. Is it the tax plan that Joe Biden has, or is it the fact that we are now hating each other with increasing intensity? And you've talked a lot about this, where all of a sudden, people like you and me who've been on the right and haven't budged on a ton of substantive positions on the right now find ourselves, quote unquote, in the center, not so much because, not without budging, but because we're committed to classical liberalism, right. because we're opposed to authoritarianism. And that tendency towards authoritarianism is stoked by this uh, commitment to hating your opponents because uh, liberty cannot thrive in an atmosphere of hate. Because if you hate your opponents and you believe your opponents are pure evil, and this is something I get more pushback from almost than anything other than my critiques of Trump, is that people accuse me of being way too charitable towards liberals because don't you know how they really are? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I've lived in Manhattan. I've lived in Center City, Philadelphia. I've lived in Ithaca, New York for crying out loud. I know. And and how they really are is human beings. <laughs> a lot yeah. of them are, some of them are cruel. A lot of them are well-meaning. And some of them are the finest people I've ever met. That's who they are. And, and, and so, but what ends up happening when you, this is how they really are. What value do they have do you have in giving them freedom? Mm -hmm. What value is there in giving them liberty if they're so evil? And, you know, that was the root of a lot of the Sorabamari stuff was these people are so horrible that all of the conventional rules of classical liberalism are inadequate to deal with a threat of that magnitude. And what I'm saying is that mentality is a far greater threat than the policy differences that exists between mainstream left and mainstream right in this culture. Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely with that. And it's, it's, 
it's really depressing and making me more more inclined to think maybe you're right when you dwell <laughs> on it. I mean, it's just, the other day when when Donald Trump tried to float the idea that he should only be judged on the death toll from COVID in red states yeah. um, was just I, the idea that, that a president of the United States of any president would talk that way is just forget appalling. It's just fascinating that we could be in that place. And, um, but it's particularly bizarre from the supposed nationalist, right? right? I mean, like the, the whole point of nationalism is to say that we are all one organic family rooted in blood and soil and this and that, and that we are, you know, one, undifferentiated whole and I, your leader, speak for the whole of America, both spiritually, but in, you know, in every other regard. You can't offer that kind of argument and with a little asterisk at the end and say, except for the most populous states. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, our, our mutual friend, Kevin Williamson, has written about this passionately and well. Every American is a real American. Mm -hmm. You know, every American is a real American. I, you know, I don't care if you're red, red, you know, if you are tweeting from your Red Rose um, DSA Twitter account from Brooklyn, or you have the Trump flag in the back of your truck in Murray County, Tennessee, you're both real Americans, you know, but we, we're beginning to get into this, this, you know, one of the things that is troubling to me on, on the right is you begin to have this rhetoric of real America real America. We're all real Americans. We got to figure this out. You know, we got to, we got to figure this out. We're both real. <laughs> Everybody's real here. We got to, f- to figure this out. And, and that, that Trump rhetoric, the fact that there isn't a sense of, of revulsion at that, mm-hmm. like I, I, I can't even, ima- well, I mean, we can do this all day. If Barack Obama had said, right. <laughs> I mean, we can do it all day. Um, but what I have found, and in, in this circles back to our conversation about um, the court, every single time you bring up something that is, I think, objectively bad that Trump does, a person can find a grievance somewhere from the left and say, and look at what they do. And, and, and that's, you know, one of the, in chapter one of the book, one of the things that I I lay out is what was really alarming to me after I got back from Iraq in 08 and I began to see this dynamic is the Sunni-Shia conflict. Although there was Sunnis and Shias had different theology, they had different policy visions for how to govern the nation of Iraq. They had different ideas for how to allocate oil revenue and parliamentary seats and blah, blah, blah. They were not brutally killing each other over the parliamentary allocation. Right. What they they had a record of grievance. Uh, you, you know, this Shia killed my cousin. This Sunni killed my uncle. And thankfully, we don't have that narrative that extreme right now. But what's the narrative of grievance now? It is not so much you believe in tax rate X or you believe in NATO spending percentage Y, although those are important things. It's you mistreated Kavanaugh. True. You mistreated the Covington Catholic kids. True. Uh, Antifa is running around in the streets of some of our major American cities. True. So you have these lists of grievances that are real, and that's that's the indictment. That's who you are. And then the left has its own list of indictments. Um, you know, that from violence to mistreatment to cruelty, they both have this laundry list. 
And then what Twitter says is, okay, who adjudicate, adjudicate pundit, whose right. list of atrocities is worse? And, you know, that's, that's not how you deal with A, civil unrest, or B, polarization. Um, there's not a parliament of pundits that you can ad- appeal to, and we're going to find out who's got the longer and more grievous list of grievances, and they, and, and they win. That's just not, not how it's going to work. Yeah, I, I should just note, because I've talked about it a couple times on the solo podcast, that woman who wrote the book, The Case for Looting, mm-hmm. um, she probably comes closest to, I call it neo-barbarian, right? Because basically she is articulating an argument that tracks that Sunni Shia thing, except yeah. it's, it's rebellion against, uh, payback against white supremacy that gives African-American rioters or or fellow traveling white Antifa rioters the permission to burn down a Korean immigrant's grocery store. And it just is sort of like, as our friend Kevin Williamson talked about this thing about eradicating billionaires, whenever you find, Kevin has this line where he says, whenever you find yourself talking about how the way your preferred policy program would best be implemented is by getting rid of a whole class of people, you need to start over, right? <laughs> and the second you find yourself arguing that uh, a immigrant-run Korean grocery store deserved to be burned because of what some white yeah. people did 150 years ago, you push away the keyboard and go for a walk because you've you've wandered into a really weird place. Um, I, my only bring it up is because I think that while both of us are more concerned because it's more like family and you always care more about your yeah. family than strangers we're really concerned about what's going on on the right, but you know, there's a lot of bad stuff still going on on the left and that we are in particular not going to be persuasive to people on the right unless we're willing to point some of that stuff out um, yeah. and, and condemn it too, you know, because otherwise then we get yeah. the whataboutism thing. Is it? Well, oh, totally. that too, you know? Well, that's the thing. One of the things I say uh, in, in the book is the grievances happen. Right. <laughs> like, no, they're real. Right. Yeah, yeah, these things are real. I mean, you know, look, I totally get that someone on the left could say, don't label us with Antifa, you know, and somebody on the right says, don't label us with Proud Boys or Boogaloo Boys or, you know, alt-right or whatever. But what the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo Boys and the alt-right have done, all of those things are real. What Antifa is doing is real. And if we're even going to move beyond the political violence into the vicious mistreatment of political opponents. You know, as I mentioned before, the, the Kavanaugh stuff was real. Like right. the, the, the mistreatment of Kavanaugh was very real. The unbelievable mistreatment of these Covington Catholic kids was real. And, you know, and so what we end up doing is, well, and I love this Michael Brendan Doherty um, formulation. I think it's really brilliant. He says, here's what we end up doing is when we have awful things that happen from our quote-unquote side, we say, don't judge us. That's the exception. But when an awful thing happens on the other side, we say, that's emblematic. That's where their ideology leads. This is the logical progression of what those people will bring us to. But then don't judge us by the our crazies. Those are just crazies. Everybody's got crazies. And it's that emblematic versus exceptional um, dichotomy that is is really poisoning us because it allows us to 
sort of wipe from the memory board everything that the right does or the left does if you're on the left while holding the entire left or the entire right accountable for all of the atrocities that we've seen individuals commit. All right. So um, uh, we could do this all day, but I know we're going long and I have to get um, some de rigueur pop culture questions in. What are you more <laughs> excited about, the return of Mandalorian or the Dune movie? Dune. I mean, I love me some Mandalorian, but I've been waiting for this Dune movie for so long. And Dune is, it's my favorite sci-fi novel by orders of magnitude. It's distinct from fantasy like Lord of the Rings, but sci-fi, it's my favorite sci-fi novel. Um, it's been crying out for a remake. I love the trailer, but Jonah, you know I'm a fan and not a critic. I'm I'm gonna yeah, go into that. The, I'm gonna go into that theater expecting to love it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I hear you. Um, Dune, huge for me. It's one of the few sci-fi. Forget books. The whole series up until uh, you know the kids started writing them. Um, I think I made it through the sixth book, and I read all of them at least twice, and loved them, and uh, maybe three times. And uh, but the thing is we kind of know that the Mandalorian second season is going to be good because the first season was good. Um, yeah. Or we have a higher, high confidence. There's a long track record of Dune stuff sucking. And, <laughs> um, and so the, the possibility of failure is just high, is higher for me and it worries me. You know, um, that's part of my concern. Have you been watching The Boys? New season? Yes. Yes. I have not seen the most recent episode but I have been watching it. Uh, I binge watched. They released what three at once, um, yeah. and I binge watched those first three. Watched the fourth one. Um, what are your thoughts? I still really like it. Um, I, I, I worry that that some of your evangelical brethren should not know that you like it for the same reasons <laughs> that that you know Game of Thrones was a problem for you at times. Uh, but I think it's it's it's. Re just really well done. I like this season a lot. I didn't think that they could carry it through as well as they have because sometimes when they set up these cliffhangers, you think, okay, well, how are they going to deal with that? They actually dealt with it pretty well from the last season. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I do think that the super terrorist villain, the super villain factor yeah. could be higher and better than it is, yeah. but it always seems like it's sort of an afterthought a lot and that, that kind of, bot and I can always use more Giancarlo Esposito because I just think he's great in everything that he does. I, you know, I, I just think the, the, the sort of the concept of it, of what about putting superheroes in our really cynical age? Right. And, and also why don't we not presume that giving people human beings superpowers is going to make them better people and it might make them worse. Um, right is a very i mean it's a very interesting twist on the superhero genre and i'm all up for twists on the superhero genre but yeah let me just say this um if you're squeamish about violence yeah. um mm, no this is not the show for you at and all some lewd language um and yeah yeah gratuitously gross sexual stuff every now and then um but <laughs> yeah full uh, disclosure <laughs> yeah i just you know people should go in eyes wide open but 
Yeah, no, um, I, I, I love, I really like it. I'm super encouraged that Last Kingdom got renewed mm. uh, for for another season. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, now I'm going to watch Raised by Wolves, the HBO Max Ridley Scott uh, epic. Yeah, which is a new series. I have. I just haven't got. I, there's just only I heard so it's much. Supposed I can to be exciting. Do. I don't really know much about it. I mean, I've just seen that. Yeah, Scott's got this new thing. Um, have you seen Tenet? I have. Okay, I have. I, okay. I went into the theater and saw Tenet. As did I. Um, I took my daughter to see it. Oh, did you? What, okay. What did you think? I mean, okay. Remember, I'm a fan here. Uh-huh. Um, I really liked it and I still need someone to explain it to me. Yeah. Uh, I think the best insight I got, so I tweeted afterwards about, you know, I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. I thought that the the two leads, uh, John David Washington and Robert Pattinson were fantastic. I was very impressed with Pattinson. I've not been. I've changed my mind on him. I used to think he was kind of like a has been and I, I really liked him too. Yeah. I thought he was great. And he, yeah. you know, in by, by the time you see the end of it, it really makes his whole acting performance from the beginning make a ton of sense. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. But so I like that. And I liked that there was, and this isn't a spoiler because it's in one of the trailers, uh, one of the doctors or one of the physician, physicists, I'm sorry, at the very beginning says something like, you don't need to understand it. You just have to feel it. And I thought, Oh, that was just a guidepost for the movie, as someone pointed out. And so I do think there's a way to understand it, but you can also just go in and sort of experience it and really enjoy it. It is not peak Nolan, though. It's not peak no, I Nolan. Um, I basically agree with that. Uh, I got into a quite a little dust up with with um, uh, John Pott about this, who hated it. Mm, yeah. um, and uh, I didn't hate it. I think it's flawed. I think... No one was so jazzed about the conceit of the time travel stuff that he forgot to do some of the due diligence about just the narrative of the movie. Yeah. Um, but I think that opening action sequence in Moscow is one of the best action sequences um, oh. in a movie in a really long time. And I'm also just a sucker for time travel stuff. And Oh, me too. And I got to say, you know, I said this on Glop, but... As someone who's had a time travel novel in his head for years, uh, and I used to follow all the different arguments about time travel stuff, um, the Avengers second half of the Thanos thing was actually probably the best treatment of time travel um, in a movie in terms of being internally consistent for its yeah. own self. Um, yeah. And, uh, but this, I don't know. I mean, the, Entropy playing backward thing, I still got to digest a bit more. So, yeah, yeah. Now, I have one question though. So, I, you have Sonny Bunch is your friend. Mm-hmm. I, I, he's my Twitter friend. He's been my guru and guide through pop culture. And then he crapped all over Dune. Um, over the book. Yeah. 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 I saw that. Yeah. Uh, do we need to bring him on one of our dispatch outlets and just berate him for? I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour. Well, look, I mean, look, I, you mistake is, uh, you'll tell me which chapter of the Bible this comes from, but put not your faith in princes, put not your faith in Sonny Bunch, right? He is sometimes really good and he's sometimes spectacularly wrong. We're talking about the guy who still stands by the position that every single person 
on the planet of Alderaan deserve <laughs> to die to preserve the empire, right? I mean, yeah, that's, that's that's a hard position to take, you know, and so mm -hmm. you can be wrong about some things. Yeah. And yeah. And he's also he's prone to some trollishness, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean when he's right he's not right. It just it does it just doesn't mean he's always right. And um, I think that some of his takes are better than others. That's that's how I. Well, think. that is absolutely the case because the Dune take is trash. Yeah. In fact, trash. at the end at the end of my uh, so at the when you were going Ezra's podcast, he asked you to recommend three books, and the last one I recommended was Dune. You know, there's a whole generation of, you know, young wonkish progressives who've not read Dune. They need to read it. And, yeah, and, and it's just Ezra's, so they'll stop freaking quoting audience. Harry Potter as if it's like the, you know, the Talmud or something. Um, yeah. That alone would be good. <laughs> All right, my friend, David, uh, it's great to have you on. I'll see you on the Dispatch podcast tomorrow. So, I know. you know, it's a, it, we don't have to say too much of a farewell, but um, I'm going to finish the book. Uh, so far, it's, it's, it's wonderful, as I would expect from you. Um, it's Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat, and How to Restore Our Nation. Uh, David, thanks for coming on The Remnant. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, David has left the building um, or the virtual studio or his desk. I don't know where he went. Um, it's always good to have him on. I want to correct one thing I said. I said it was a Moscow opera scene, opera house scene in uh, Tenant, and it was actually in Ukraine. And I apologize for that. And um, so for those of you who have who were leaping to write angry letters, uh, screaming at me about that, uh, you can hold off. I apologize. And I will I will remove the tip of one of my fingers, Yakuza style in penance. Um, I also didn't make this point during the podcast because I didn't want to belabor it. And I felt like I was filibustering a little too much. But you know, uh, if you didn't listen to the solo remnant that I did on Friday, I talked about this quite a bit about this federalism stuff and how um, it just seems sort of, and I wrote about it a couple of times last week. And if you were a paid member of the dispatch community, you could see the Wednesday G file I did on this. Um, but you know, the, the simple fact is, is that federalism um, or subsidiarity or localism, however you want to put it, is just mathematically the best way to maximize human happiness because it allows the most people to live the way that they want to live. And, you know, uh, I mean, again, you have to have certain, as David was saying, certain bedrock protections, bill of rights style protections, but above that, letting different people live in different ways in different places in accordance with their own local mores, desires, customs, traditions, etc., is just mathematically the best way to let the most people live because they get to decide how they want to live locally. And if you don't want to live the way that the majority of people where you live want to live, you move. And one of the thought exercises I ran through last week was just, if you're going to create world government, you would definitely want, you know, it to be democratic, but you wouldn't want it to be purely majoritarian democratic. Otherwise, basically three countries could um, vote to pee in our cornflakes every single morning. What you want would want is some sort of system like we have with under the constitution, which protects small minority communities from majoritarian tyranny. And, um, so that, you know, Costa Rica could still be Costa Rica, even though some decisions were left to a centralized government, the same argument, same principle works on the national level. Um, you want as you want 
as many important decisions about how you're going to be lived to, make, to be made as close to where you actually live as possible. And you want as many, the most number of your leaders should be people that you have access to closest to home because those people actually know how you live and you know how to talk to them and you can actually fire them, which is something that is very difficult to do when unelected bureaucrats 2,000 miles away are running everything. Anyway, it's my hobby horse. I apologize, but I just, I needed to get it out there. Um, I am leaving to take my daughter to California on Thursday night to have her look at mostly empty schools and stuff in part to energize her for um, the prospect of going to college. And um, so I will try to get all of my responsibilities done here, but it may be um, circumscribed. I will let you know. Um, and if everybody could, again, check out the 30-day offer, become a paid member, do what you can to help us out in these trying times. I would really appreciate it. Um, we really want to grow and get bigger. And, you know, our trend lines are all great, but they could be even better. And if you're a fan of this podcast or you're a fan of David's or mine or what we're trying to do, um, your support is uh, all that it takes for us to go to the next level. So with that, thanks to David French. Again, it's called Divided We Fall. And uh, you should pick it up as soon as you can, right after you get that membership to the dispatch. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.